So if you would, <clears throat> take your copy of the scriptures, turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts in chapter 1, if you need your um, phone or your iPad or whatever may be the case, uh, I read out of the NIV, so just type in Acts 1, and then after it, type in NIV, and we'll be looking at the same thing. It's also going to be on the screen for you, kind of make life easier for us here this morning. But Acts chapter 1, we're doing a series called Empowered. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, something that our type of church doesn't really discuss a whole lot. You know, in 1983, there was a guy by the name of John Scully, and I don't know if the name rings a bell for you, but John Scully was an executive with PepsiCo. And he took a leap to become the president of Apple Computer, and this risk of leaving a prestigious job with one of the largest beverage companies in the world, even, to join ranks with an unproven little outfit that offered no guarantees, only the excitement of one man's transforming vision. That risk was absolutely crazy huge. And I'm going to tell you what, what made it for him. Scully says he made the risky move after Apple co-founder Steve Jobs goaded him with the question. You ready for the questions? This is what Steve Jobs said to Scully. He said, do you want to live the rest of your life selling sugared water? Or do you want the opportunity to change the world? Now, this is an 83. How many of you own an Apple product of some form? Phone, computer, whatever? Yeah, yeah. This thing's global. Do you want to sell sugared water the rest of your life, or do you want the opportunity to change the world? And he, and he left PepsiCo that was global to take on something that ended up literally transforming society, transforming culture the world over. Now, <clears throat> the same thing was put out to our disciples. However, they didn't look like they were people that would change the world. And we look at our disciples, especially before Acts chapter 2. I don't know your impression of the disciples. If you walk into some churches, they have these stone sculptures of the disciples. And you think, wow, what men of staunch resolve. What solid core men who are so brave and bold. Well, you know what? If you look at them before Acts chapter 2... I wonder what their statue would look like. If you think about it, because before Acts chapter 2, let me give you some words the Bible talks about our disciples. They were terrified. The Bible, even Jesus says, there's going to be a day you're going to have weeping, you're going to be wailing, you're going to be crying because you're going to feel abandoned as I leave you. The Bible describes them as guys huddled in an upper room with the door locked. They don't have a statue of that, folks. The Bible describes one of their famous sayings that they said over and over to each other in regards to, to Jesus. They would say this back and forth to each other. What does he mean? What is he talking about? They were confused. This was the pre-Acts 2 disciples. And then there's Jesus, or then there was, there was Peter, <clears throat> who around the fire... After Jesus was taken away, 
You know, he had just said, I, I'm going to be with you, Jesus. I'm going to be with you to the end. You know, I'm going I'm to die for you. <clears throat> and then he's standing around with other people who were against Jesus. And they're like, hey, hey, you were with him. And he's like, I, I, I don't know him. I don't know anything about this Jesus. And in the end, at the third time, he ended up cursing, saying, I know nothing about Jesus. And so here's this fear. Here's this confusion. Here's this feeling of abandonment. Here's this sorrow. Here's this locking themselves up. Here's this betrayal. This is the pre-Acts 2 disciples. And when you look at them, <clears throat> this is at the end of their three-year training period by Jesus. Disciple training. And he comes to the end of the three years. And if there was a yearbook of the disciples, <clears throat> would there be any of them that would have been voted most likely to succeed? most likely to change the world. I'm here to tell you, no. Not a one of them pre-acts to. But now we jump into this. I have you turn to Acts 1, and I'm going to share with you what Jesus says to them. There's this discussion going on. Jesus has with his disciples, <clears throat> and just capture with me this discussion Starting in verse 4, it's going to be up on your screen too if you want to follow it there. Here's, here's what Jesus says. On, on one occasion, while he, that's Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus talked about in John 14 through 16 that we've talked about in here the past couple weeks. The Holy Spirit's coming, guys. Then notice what they said in verse 6. <clears throat> then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Their mindset was something completely different. <clears throat> they were looking at a political power and here's what jesus said to them verses seven and eight it's not for you to know the times or dates the father is set by his own authority but you will receive power when the holy spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth this is folks fasten your seatbelt. the ultimate power move by jesus he completely flips the script on the disciples and i'm going to show you exactly how this thing works so the disciples were expecting something different in verse six so jesus says here he comes i'm going to send you the holy spirit and so after the death of jesus after the burial after the resurrection and after the promised Holy Spirit, after all of those things, here the disciples give this phrase, okay, so you promised us the Holy Spirit, so is this the time? Is this the time that you're going to set up this political kingdom? Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So what they were looking for, they were looking for a political power they were looking for a personal 
positioning. They were looking for rule. They were looking for power. They were looking for prominence, even a vindication. So are we going to be on top of the world? You know, for all this time, here's the thumb of Rome. It's been on us this whole time. Are you going to be able to lift that off of us now? Are you going to rise Israel to power? Are we going to be able to be on top for once? Is this the time for that? Now, this isn't the first time that the disciples have brought this up. Because back earlier in the Gospels, there were times that they argued with each other. Hey, I'm going to be the, the leader here. When the kingdom comes, I'm on top. And then the other, no, I'm on top. No, I'm on top. And they go back and forth arguing about this. Or even worse, like how embarrassing. Two of them had their mom come to Jesus. Now, I don't know how you'd feel if your mom came. If my mom came and said, hey, can my boys, you know, when you set up your kingdom, can my boys sit like one at your right hand and one at your left hand? Like, really? It was all about their kingdom. It was all about their position. And so here, Jesus had died, risen, says here comes the Holy Spirit, and they're thinking, okay, here comes power. There's going to be a government advancement. We're going to have the chance for position. Now notice what Jesus does. Jesus discusses the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is the ultimate power move. Jesus, not a national political power. He was investing an enabling power to accomplish his gospel purpose. Look at verse 7 and 8. He says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, you, you're, you're seeing it right there. It's either on the screen or it's in the Bible in front of you. So here's the big word. You're going to be saying it with me. It's because it's the purpose. You're going to receive the power, and you will be my what? Yes, yeah, so the other, the other 95% of you, and you will be my what? Yes, yeah, so here's the deal. They're saying, okay, I'm going to be like the vice president. He's like, no, 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 no. You're going to be my witnesses. That's your position. I'm not going to give you a position. I'm going to give you a purpose. The power I'm going to give you is not for government advancement. It's for gospel advancement. The power I'm going to give you is not for your personal position. It's for your personal purpose. It's for a gospel purpose. Now, here's what the power means. Because there's, there's some backdrop wording to this. And if you, if you go back with the wording on this, the word literally means to be able. There is something behind this. The power I'm going to enable, it's you will be able. What you are unable to do, what you feel inadequate for, what you would fail at, my spirit will give you ability, my spirit will give you adequacy, my spirit will give you success. And not because you need to succeed, but because my purpose, my gospel needs to succeed. So while they were concerning themselves with political power, with governmental advantage, 
Jesus was concerned with an altogether different power. He was concerned with a gospel advantage. So I want to show you what happened. This, if you've never heard this before, is going to torture your thinking. What did the Holy Spirit do for their gospel advantage? So just look ahead. Look at chapter 2 of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit steps in, and this is what goes on. This is absolutely mind-boggling. <clears throat> so we already know about the disciples. They're unschooled. They're untrained. They don't have a whole lot going for them. And Pentecost comes. Now, Pentecost, I envision it kind of like the culturally like the Olympics. There are people from all over the world that show up at one location. And it's for the religious feast of Pentecost. It's for the Jewish observance of Pentecost. So there's Jews from every nation all on the world, and they all come back to Jerusalem to observe this, this special religious uh, ceremony together. And so here they are. Now, they all speak different languages. And you're thinking, what a barrier to the gospel. How's an unschooled, untrained individual going to converse with the gospel to people of all these other languages? Well, check this out. This is incredible. So verse 4 of chapter 2. So Pentecost was there. There's the disciples. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit enabled them so you're speaking speaking in other tongues what was that well if you look down a little bit later verse 8 here's what happened all these people in other languages what were these these were it says in verse 8 how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language this was unbelievable the disciples were talking in languages that they didn't know how to speak. And all these people from other languages were hearing the gospel in their language. I was just trying to think, how could I explain this to you? Because, I mean, you all look absolutely amazed right now and mesmerized. So let me just try to think, how can we, how can we do this? So, um, How many of you do not... You're with me. You do not know how to read music or to play the keyboard. How many of you put up your hand? You don't know how to play. You don't know how to read music. Okay, good. So imagine the service is about to start. We don't have a keyboardist, and we choose you. And you say, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I've never played. I can't read music. That's okay. And we bring you up and we put you behind the keyboard. And you, all of a sudden, start to crank out the worship songs. That's what we're talking about. That would be like me grabbing that guitar, like with the first worship song you just heard this morning. And during that riff, that Jotham was playing, like I'm sliding across here playing it, and I have no idea how to do it. And after needing an abundance of asper cream for my muscles, like I'm like, I don't know how to do this. How is this happening? That's what was going on with the disciples. 
their inability was replaced with ability. Ability replaced deficiency. These guys were unschooled. These guys were untrained. These guys had nothing going for them as far as any type of higher education. And the Holy Spirit came and removed barriers. I'm going to tell you, here's the biggest thing he removed. Because we all have this. Here's what the Holy Spirit removed. Are you ready? He removed excuses. I can't talk to that crowd. I can't do this. He removed excuses. Here's the second thing he did. Not only did ability replace deficiency, courage replaced fear. Now, you remember we just talked about it a minute ago. It wasn't just a few weeks before this. The guys were in an upper room, door locked. Remember, it was just a few weeks before this. Peter was standing around with a bunch of guys denying Jesus and even cursing. I'd never seen him, never knew him. I had nothing to do with him. Now look at chapter 4. Look at chapter 4 of, of Acts. This is the craziest thing. Because in verse 8, it says, Then Peter, now we know who Peter is. He was the one that denied Jesus. He was the one that cursed. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now you wonder, who is them? Now just back up because it mentions it in verse 5 and 6. Them are the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law. Them, verse 6, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others. Let me just tell you, here's the them. The them are the people who just got done responsible for killing Jesus. So Peter denied Jesus to no-namers, and now the them, he's standing in front of the people who are responsible for killing Jesus. He was a coward before no-namers. Now he's standing before the guys who killed Jesus. And you're thinking, what is he going to say well it says in verse 8 peter filled with the holy spirit said to them listen to this one folks rulers and elders of the people we are being called into account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed then know this you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, friends, that is crazy courage. And it mentions he said that because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He let her rip. He's like, hey, guys, I'm glad I called this meeting. Do I have something I need to tell you? You killed Jesus. He's alive. And there's no other name by which people can be saved except Jesus Christ. That's boldness. 
Now, I want to give you not the words of the disciples, not the testimony of their friends. Look at verse 13. These are the thoughts of their enemies. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So you realize what they're saying? Like, these guys got no education. You with me? These guys are fishermen. They're fishermen. One of my favorite bumper stickers says, Fishermen, a jerk on one end of the line waiting for a jerk on the other. And it's like, that's what they do. And they just pulled us into the room and they just told us what for. And courage replaced fear. Now, in just a second, I have a video for you because you need to see this, folks. We need to experience this. We need to feel it. And, and the whole thing, this is what needs to grip our heart because can I just tell you, the church is, ex- the church is exploding. The church is growing. The church, like fire, is spreading. But let me tell you where it's spreading. You want to know where church is spreading right now? The church right now is spreading like crazy in Iran. In Iran, where they don't have a single building. Where they don't have a budget. Where they don't have a 501c3. Where they don't have a program. The church is like fire going through that nation. And you want to know where the church is not spreading? Take a guess. Right here in the United States of America. I got a video, and I know that we wouldn't agree with everything that they say in it, but it's an interview with a guy named Pastor X. They can't give out his name. His face is blotted out. His voice is distorted. He's from a Middle Eastern country. He came from the West. He married a Muslim woman. And you're going to hear what's going on in his life and the decisions they made because they wanted something different. They didn't want political power. They didn't want personal advancement. They wanted gospel advancement. You've got to see this. Watch this. Know one of the the reasons you do the work that you do that we're about to talk about is your wife and and her love for God and and really her story is incredible yes my wife was a radical Muslim at the age of three she wore the burqa at the age of five started reading the Quran at the age of nine memorized the Quran at the age of 13 was so in love with God that they took her out of school and put her in the Islamic fundamentalist school at the age of 17 she became an evangelist for Islam And so she'd be the one who would be like the religious police in the country that she's in. At the age of 23, she had a personal heartbreak and tries to kill herself. And when she does this, her mom is diagnosed with MS. She told her mother, look, you're dying. I want to kill myself. Let's kill each other. So they made a suicide pact. So on a Thursday night, they kick the father out. They kick the sister out. And they're about to take sleeping pills and turn on the natural gas. 
So they turn on the TV and there is a Christian satellite broadcast. And the pastor said, my brothers and sisters, why do you want to kill yourself tonight? Jesus wants to change your life. And she was so taken back by that. She's like, you know what? I'm going to call this program and prove to them that Jesus is dead and then kill myself. So I can be the first woman in front of the law saying, I did everything you've asked me to do and you've done nothing for me. So they called the program and her mom speaks to the pastor. And after about 20 minutes, she comes to Christ. And my wife was furious. Like, how dare you blaspheme Muhammad, you idiot, you imbecile, you kofar, you infidel. And so she's about to kill herself. And her mom says, before you kill yourself, my last wish is that you talk to the pastor. So she said, fine. She talks to the pastor. And after two hours, the pastor could not convince her to come to Christ. So he said this. So you've served Allah all your life, and the fruit of it is that you're suicidal, depressed, and you want to kill yourself. Give Jesus one week, and if he doesn't do anything for you, go ahead and kill yourself. So my wife took the challenge, so she did this sinner's prayer. She said, I'll do this stupid prayer, then live on satellite with a gun, I will kill myself to prove their Jesus is dead. Amen. So she hangs up the phone, and at 5 a.m. in the morning, she hears her mom screaming, and she jumps up thinking the MS has hit her lungs and she sees that her mom was walking perfectly in the house. So they run to the hospital, they do a blood work and an MRI, and there's no MS in her mom's body. So they asked my wife, who'd you pray to? And she said, I didn't pray to anyone except Jesus. And so immediately she brings five people to Christ right there. <laughs> so the next week she calls the pastor and says, I was the girl that wanted to embarrass Jesus, but Jesus embarrassed me. Now I bring five people to Christ. What do I do with them? <laughs> So you were comfortable in a Western country, you had um, a good job, you had friends, you had a life, and, and something didn't feel right. So, so you all were married and, and had your future ahead, and you wanted to stay. That's correct. I put my life in a Western country. I had everything a person could dream of in a Western country. I had a house, a great paying job, I had cars, I had money, I had everything, but I wasn't happy. I bring my wife from the country she was in into this Western country and I give her the great life, the abundant life. And after two months, she comes up to me and says, I'm depressed. I'm like, how are you depressed? You came from a third world country, we're in a first world country. And she says, because the church here is under a satanic lullaby and I'm falling asleep. And every time I try to wake up, the lullaby goes faster. Let's go back to my country. And I was so shocked by that statement. So you leave everything and you go and and you begin to share Jesus in the Middle East. And so talk about that first time that that's going on and what's happening. When I first went into the country and all over the Middle East, we would say Jesus and eight out of 10 people would come to Christ right then and there. Jesus is coming in dreams, visions, and power encounters. He's making a mess of the country and we're just the cleanup crew. You have to realize, Jenny, this is the biggest revival happening in the Middle East since the Islamic conquest and Jesus is going after these people in Muslim nations. Because when I look at a Muslim, I see a passionate person in love with God, but the wrong God. And so we have all these Saul to Paul experiences like my wife. Once she found out the real God was Christ, she's ready to die for him now. And that's what's happening in the Middle East. It's so amazing. And then persecution came and very hard persecution came. And what happened was all of a sudden we were we were in all these cities, and then we started to lose the cities. We started losing the churches. We started losing leaders and members, and I became very upset. I almost became depressed because all of my leaders are getting arrested. They're looking for me, and I would read the book of Acts, 
and I would say, Lord, persecution grows the church. Why is persecution killing the church? And finally, the Lord answers me, and he says, you made converts, not disciples. Converts will run away from me in persecution. Disciples will die for me. And I said, Lord, what does that mean? And he said, look at your wife. And so I'm looking at her, and he says, because she encountered me, she will die for me. You must give the word of God, but it must be sealed by the power of God. And so that's what we do right now. We take people on a journey of discipleship from the first moment I see them, and we disciple them to Christ. And then we disciple them to leadership. What's the difference in a convert and a disciple? A convert basically knows Jesus as Savior, but not as King. A disciple first knows that Jesus is King and then Savior because when you know he's King and he's the only one who's leading you, then you're willing to die for him because you trust him, even in the worst situation. I'm going to tell you the phrase in there that just wrecked me. Satanic lullaby. Did you hear it? And the difference between converts and disciples. And this is happening in Muslim country under fear of death and no church building, no programs, no budget, no 501c3, no seminaries, no structure like we have right here. I mean, I can just, oh, I could just, there's more to the video. I could just sense their passion from person to person to person that everyone was engaged in gospel advancement. They weren't waiting for something to come out of a church structure. They weren't waiting for a new program to be invented. They took it upon themselves. It was their life mission. In fact, they couldn't do a program because once it got so big, the government would see it and they'd come in and kill them all. It had to be person to person to person. And here these people were tired of their Western life and they abandoned their purpose of personal kingdom advancement and God's Spirit is lighting up their region. Okay, I'm going to leave you with three reasons. Three reasons why many don't sense the Spirit in their lives right now. And I'm not just giving you these out of uh, just a thought. These come from here. These come from me. These come from my failures. And I think these are things we all can identify with. Three reasons why often people don't, we don't experience God's spirit working in our lives. Number one, I'm just going to say it. I need to come to grips with this. The spirit is given for gospel, not personal advancement. And just like the disciples had to come to grips. They're like, ooh, is this the time for the kingdom? Is this the time for my position? Is this the time that we're going to be in rule? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. It's not that. The Spirit's given for gospel advancement. You want power, spirit power? It's for that. And I believe 
I might be crazy, but I believe a major reason why the Church of America is disconnected from the Spirit's enabling is because it's disconnected for the purpose for which He enables. Just going to say it. I believe it. The Spirit isn't into our advancement as much as we are. It's into His kingdom come, His will be done. And even our spiritual kingdoms, I don't know that he's as impressed. You know, we've got the best program. We've got the best preacher. We've got the best teacher. That's nice. But do we have an eye and a heart and a passion for the mission of Jesus Christ? Person to person, your world to theirs. And and I'm telling you, I'm just about to jump on my own toes right here because 15 years ago, I would have heard this message, 15 years ago, and I would have said, man, how come that pastor isn't right now taking a stand against tongues? He's to rock this one right out and say, tongues, take a stand, make it big, say it loud. When at the same time, I wasn't even proclaiming the gospel in English to my neighbor or my friend. Shame on me. The language that my friend spoke, that my neighbor spoke, that the cashier speaks, I wouldn't even say the gospel in that, but I had good doctrinal positions against everyone else. And the Spirit's into gospel advancement. And I believe if we tried to speak the gospel in English, he just might even help us talk that way to our neighbor and our friend. Spirit is given for gospel, not personal advancement. Here's number two. We feel self-sufficient. Man, I've had to grapple with this myself. We feel self-sufficient. This is the downfall of America and our independent and ingenuity and all of that. You know, we have the genius. Oh, we've got a program for that. Oh, we can solve that. We've got the abilities for that. Let's just get our leadership team together. Boom, we can solve that thing and take care of that. And and if we can do it all on our own, guess who we don't need? But God gave us his spirit because he knows we can't do it all on our own. It's what we talked about the very first week we got together. God gave his spirit because we need help we need help here's number three if there's any toes we have left this is the last one to step on it's because we prefer the comfort zone why many don't sense the spirit in their lives i've been there we prefer the comfort zone too often I have said or I have heard, I can't do that. I, I don't do that. I don't do kids. Well, try, I have to do kids now, you know. I don't do hospitals. I don't do difficult situations. I'm non-confrontational. I don't do things like that. Well, you know what? We need to realize our weaknesses 
are the reason why God gave us his spirit. God knows we're weak. He knows we can't. That's why he gave us someone who can. The spirit's given because I need help. And he's given because I need gospel purpose. Don't wait for a church program. God's given you gospel purpose as a person. Would you stand with me? And here's the things I want you to think about in your heart and your mind right now. Just close your eyes. I want you to think about it. But for a gospel purpose, you need the gospel. I mean, it just goes without saying. What we celebrated today, to embrace the death of Jesus Christ, that he is your forgiver, the way maker to, to a relationship with God because we broke that path with our sin. So before gospel purpose, you need the gospel. And friend, if that's where you're at, would you just take a moment and express to God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't have a relationship with you, but I realize Jesus died. He, for, he died to take on himself my penalty for my sin. God, I embrace that. I believe it. I, I know it. Forgive me. Make me your child. That's you. Talk to God and say that. But then next, friend, the rest of us, we need a gospel purpose in our life something that the Spirit would enable us for. To talk to our neighbor, our friend, to build that relationship, to invest in them, to pray for them. To not get sucked into our own personal advancement, but to be lit up by His purpose for us. Would you talk to God right now? Express any decision, any thought, anything you want to express, just express it to him right now about this. I'll give you a moment. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit of God, we come to you because we need help. And we express, help us. Free us from this Western personal kingdom advancement. And God, unleash us to your gospel kingdom advancement. Help us to bust through the comfort zone, to break through the feelings of self-sufficiency, and to acknowledge our dependency on your spirit to do things that we otherwise wouldn't on our own. Help us to pray for, invest in, and invite people into your kingdom 
And may we see you do things that are only attributable to you. And to you be the kingdom and the glory and the honor forever and ever. Together we say, amen and amen. Hey, God bless you. Sorry I went a couple minutes over. I'll make it up to you someday, just not anytime soon. See you in the foyer. God bless.